This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot org. Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Hearn. Chapter 11, in which Phileas Fogg and his companions venture across the Indian forest and what ensured. In order to shorten the journey, the guide passed to the left of the line where the railway was still in process of being built. This line, owing to the capricious turnings of the Vindhyaha Mountains, did not pursue a straight course. The Percy, who was quite familiar with the roads and paths in this district, declared that they would gain twenty miles by striking directly through the forest. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty plunged to the neck in the peculiar hollows provided for them, for were horribly jostled by the swift trotting of the elephant, spurred on as he was by the skillful Percy, but they endured discomfort with true British phlegm, talking little and scarcely able to catch a glimpse of each other. As for Passepartout, who was mounted on the beast's back and received direct force of each conscious as he trod along, he was very careful, in accordance with his master's advice, to keep his tongue from between his teeth, as it would otherwise have been bitten off short. The worthy fellow bounced from the elephant's neck to his rump, and vultured like a clown on a springboard. Yet he laughed in the midst of his bouncing, and from time to time took a piece of sugar out of his pocket and inserted it into Kwani's trunk, who received it without in the least slacking his regular trot. After two hours, the guide stopped the elephant and gave him an hour for rest, during which Kwamini, after quenching his thirst at a neighboring spring, set to devour the branches and scrubs round about him. Neither Sir Francis nor Mr. Fogg regretted the delay, and both descended with a feeling of relief. Why, he's made of iron, exclaimed the general, gazing admirably on Kwani. Or forged iron, replied Passepartout, as he set about preparing a hasty breakfast. At noon, the Pharisee gave the signal of departure. The country soon presented a very savage aspect. Copses of dates and dwarf palms succeeded the dense forest, then vast dry plains dotted with scanty shrubs and sown with great blocks of sienite. All this portion of Bundelkut, which is little frequented by travelers, is inhabited by a fanatical population, hardened in the most horrible practices of the Hindu faith. The English have not been able to secure complete dominance over this territory, which is subject to the influence of Rahas, whom it is most impossible 
to reach in their inaccessible mountain fastnesses. The travelers several times saw bands of furious Indians who, when they perceived the elephant striding across country, made angry and threatening motions. The Pharisee avoided them as much as possible. Few animals were observed on the route. Even the monkeys hurried from their path with counterations and grimaces with convulsed Pispartu with laughter. In the midst of his janty, however, one thought troubled the worthy servant. What would Mr. Fogg do with the elephant when he got to Allahabad? Would he carry him on with him? Impossible! The cost of transporting him would make him renuously expensive. Would he sell him or set him free? The estimable beast certainly deserved some consideration. Should Mr. Fogg choose to make him, Pispartu, a present of Kwani, he would be very much embarrassed. And these thoughts did not cease worrying him for a long time. The principal chain of the Vindies was crossed by eight in the evening, and another halt was made on the northern slope in the ruined Bengalo. They had gone nearly twenty-five miles that day, and an equal distance still separated them from the station of Allahabad. The night was cold. The Pharisee lit a fire in the bungalow with a few dry branches and the warmth was very grateful. Provisions purchased at Colby sufficed for supper, and the travelers ate ravenously, the conversation beginning with a few disconnected phrases soon gave place to loud and steady snores. The guide watched Kwani, who slept standing, bolstering himself against the trunk of a large tree. Nothing occurred during the night to disturb these slumbers, although occasionally growls, front panthers, and chatterings of monkeys broke the silence, and more formidable beasts made no cries or hostile demonstrating against the occupants of the bungalow. So Francis slept heavily, like an honest soldier overcome with fatigue. Pispartu was wrapped in uneasy dreams of the bouncing of the day before. As for Mr. Fogg, he slumbered as peacefully as if he had been in his Siri mansion in Savile Row. The journey was resumed at six in the morning. The guide hoped to reach Elabad by evening. In that case, Mr. Fogg would only lose part of the 48 hours saved since the beginning of the tour. Kwani, resuming his rapid gait, soon descended the lower spurs of Uwani, and towards noon they passed by the village of Kalinger on the Kani, one of the branches of the Genghis. The guide avoided inhabited places, thinking it safer to keep the open country which lies along the first depressions of the basin of the Great River. Alabad was now only twelve miles to the northeast. They stopped under a clump of bananas, the fruit of which, as healthy as a bread and as succulent as cream, was amply partaken of and appreciated. At 
two o'clock, the guide entered a thick forest, which extended several miles. He preferred to travel under cover of the woods. They had not as yet had any unpleasant encounters, and the journey seemed on the point of being successfully accomplished, when the elephant, becoming restless, suddenly stopped. It was then four o'clock. "'What's the matter?' asked Sir Francis, putting out his head. "'I don't know, officer,' replied the Parsi, listening attentively to the confused murmur which came through the thick branches. The murmur soon became more distinct. It now seemed like a distant concert of human voices accompanied by brass instruments. Passepartout was all eyes and ears. Mr. Fogg patiently waited without a word. The Pharisee jumped to the ground, fastened the elephant to a tree, and plunged into the thicket. He soon returned, saying, A process of Brahmis is coming this way. We must prevent their seeing us, if possible. The guide unloosed the elephant and led him into a thicket, at the same time asking the travelers not to stir. He held himself ready to bestride the animal at a moment's notice. Shoulder flight became necessary, but he eventually thought that the procession of the faithful would pass without perceiving them amid the thicket foliage in which they were wholly concealed. The discordant tones of the voices and instruments drew near, and now droning the songs mingled with the sound of tambourines and cymbals. The head of the procession soon appeared beneath the trees, a hundred paces away, and the strange figures who performed the religious ceremony were easily distinguished through the branches. First came the priests with mitres on their heads and claws in long robes. They were surrounded by men, women, and children who sang a kind of lugubrious psalm interrupted at regular intervals by the tambourines and cymbals, while behind him was drawn a car with large wheels the spokes of which represented serpents entwined with each other. Upon the car, which was drawn by four richly caparisoned zebus, stood a hideous statue with four arms, a body calmed a dull red with haggard eyes, disheveled hair, protruding tongue, and lips tinted with beetle. It stood upright upon the figure of a prostrate and headless giant. Sir Francis recognized the statue whispering, the goddess Kai, the goddess of love and death. Of death, perhaps, muttered back Passepartout, but of love, the ugly old hag, never. The Pharisee made a motion to keep silent. A group of old fikirs were caparting the making a wild Adu round the statue. These were striped with ochre and covered with cuts whence their blood issued drop by drop. Stupid fanatics who, in the great Indian ceremonies, still throw themselves under the wheels of Juggernaut, some Brahms 
Claude, in all sumptuousness of oriental apparel, and leading a woman who faltered at every step, followed this woman, was young and as fair as European. Her head and neck, shoulders, ears, arms, hands, and toes were loaded down with jewels and gems, with bracelets, earrings, and rings, while a tunic bordered with gold, covered with a light muslin robe, betrayed the outlying of her form. The guards who followed the young woman presented a violent contrast to her, armed as they were with naked sabres, hung to the waists, and long domestic pistols, and bearing a corpse on a palanquin, it was the body of an old man gorgeously arrayed in the hamblements of a rahach, wearing, as in life, a turban embroidered with pearls, a robe of tissue of silk and gold, a scarf of cashmere sewed with diamonds, and the magnificent weapons of a Hindu prince. Next came the musicians, and a rearguard of capering fakirs, whose cries sometimes drowned the noise of the instruments. These closed the Prussians. Sir Francis watched the Prussian with a sad countenance, and turned to the guide, said, A sutti. The Parisian nodded and put his finger to his lips. The procession slowly wound under the trees, and soon its last ranks disappeared in the depths of the wood. The songs gradually died away. Occasional cries were heard in the distance, until at last all was silence again. Phyllis Fogg had heard what Sir Francis said, and soon as the procession had disappeared, asked, what is a suti? A suti, returned the general, is a human sacrifice, but a voluntary one. The woman you have just seen will be burned tomorrow at the dawn of day. Oh, the scoundrels, cried Passepartout, who could not repress his indignation. And the corpse, asked Mr. Fogg, is that of the prince, her husband, said the guide. An independent Raja of Bundlekhaya. Is it possible, resumed Mr. Fogg, his voice betraying not the last emotion, that these barbarous customs still exist in India, and that the English have been unable to put a stop to them? These sacrifices do not occur in the larger portion of India, replied Sir Francis. But we have no power over these savage territories, and especially here in Bundlekhad. The whole district north of the Vindhyas is the three tier of incessant murders and pillage. The poor wretch, exclaimed Paspartout, to be burned alive? Yes, returned Sir Francis, burned alive. And if she were not, you cannot conceive what treatment she would be obliged to submit to from her relatives. They would shave off her hair, feed her on a scanty allowance of rice, treat her with content. She would be looked upon as 
an unclean creature and would die in some corner like a scurvy dog. The prospect of so frightful an existence drives these poor creatures to the sacrifice. Much more than love or religion fantasism, sometimes, however, the sacrifice is really voluntary, and it requires the active interference of the government to prevent it. Several years ago, when I was living at Bombay, a young widow asked permission of the government to be burned along with her husband's body, but, as you may imagine, he refused. The woman left the town, took refuge with an independent Raja, and there carried out her self-devoted purpose. While Sir Francis was speaking, the guide shook his head several times, and now said, The sacrifices which will take place tomorrow at dawn is not a voluntary one. How do you know? Everybody knows about this affair in Buanda. But the wretched creature did not seem to be making any resistance, observed Sir Francis. This was because they had intoxicated her with fumes of hemp and opium. But where are they taking her? To the pagoda of Pelea. Two miles from here, she will pass the night there. And the sacrifice will take place tomorrow at the first light of dawn. The guide now led the elephant out of the thicket and leapt upon his neck. Just at the moment that he was about to urge Kwani forward with a peculiar whistle, Mr. Fogg stopped him and turned to Sir Francis Cromarty and said, Suppose we save this woman. Save the woman, Mr. Fogg? I've yet twelve hours to spare. I can devote them to that. Why, you are a man of heart. Sometimes, replied Phyllis Fogg quietly, when I have the time. End of chapter 12 this has been a TBOL3 production.